For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Second Kings 23, Second Chronicles 15, Deuteronomy 13, and Second Samuel 15. First of all, Second Kings comes right after First Kings. Second Kings chapter 23, the first three verses. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimony and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people entered into the covenant. Wouldn't it be great to have a president and a people that would do that again? Second Chronicles chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you're with him, and if you seek him, he'll let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And for many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. And in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. And in those times there was no peace to him who went out or him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. And nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Now, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet, spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them. For many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of Asa's reign, and they sacrificed to the Lord that day seven hundred oxen, seven thousand sheep from the spoil they had brought, and they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul, and whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns, and all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him, so the Lord gave them rest on every side. And the other is Deuteronomy 13. Now remember what all these passages represent, the reading, reason we're reading them, 
is because these are some of John Knox's favorite pastors, uh, passages, and we're talking about John Knox and the Scottish Reformation. And more importantly, these are the passages upon which he based his whole understanding of church government and a Christian's responsibility to uh, governments and, well, particularly as to tyrants. Now, he would quote Deuteronomy 13, and for any who are visitors here this evening, I trust you believe with us that every word of the Bible is the word of God and that every word of the Bible is given by God. It's incapable of error. It's a revelation of God's character. And therefore, there is nothing unjust, unkind, barbaric, inhumane, overly severe or harsh, which God has commanded of his people. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you've not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, or the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you've not known, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. And if it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, and all that is in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square, and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. And it shall be ruined forever. It shall never be rebuilt. And nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand, in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you, and have compassion on you, and make you increase just as he has sworn to your fathers, if you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments which I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. And then one last verse in Second Samuel chapter 15, which verse John Knox had the occasion to, to refer to one time before in the very presence of the Queen of Scotland. Remember Samuel was, for all practical purposes, the head of the state. He was a prophet. He was a civil, I mean, a a judge, a civil magistrate. He was acting as a civil magistrate. And Agag was a terrorist. Just remember that. 
And in 2 Samuel, did I say 15? I don't think I really meant that. 1 Samuel, excuse me. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 33. But Samuel said, speaking to uh, Agag, the terrorist, But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. What we've been talking about now for several, for uh, two or three weeks is the Scottish Reformation uh, in the 15th and 16th, uh, 15 and 1600s. And we're, we've been doing that because it's essential to understanding who we are and why we believe the things that we believe, why our church is structured the way it is, why our mindset is the way it is. And uh, after giving now two weeks or three, I've forgotten, on the life of John Knox and his ministry, I want this evening to talk about the distinctive contributions that John Knox made to the Protestant Reformation. And I want you to see how these distinctive contributions have affected God's people down through the centuries since his death over 400 years ago. We've already seen how that many of the things that he's taught have been have influenced the United States more than any other nation. John Knox, you remember, got in trouble because he said that the head of state should never be a woman. And, the, and he based it on Isaiah 3 and various other passages. The only nation since that has been faithful to John Knox and has never had a woman head of state is the United States of America. And various other things uh, have been in, uh, he, he's influenced us. Now, tonight, I want to talk about several things. I want to talk about his uh, distinctive contribution with reference to his attitude toward the Bible, uh, his contribution with reference to our understanding of politics and the role of civil government, his perspective regarding the resistance of a godly citizenry, to tyranny in civil officials, which is his major contribution. Uh, in fact, I doubt if there'd ever been an American Revolution in 1776 if it wasn't for the writings and influence of John Knox a couple hundred years before. And uh, the how John Knox felt that Christians ought to provide for the poor and unemployed within a culture and, he, and talk about his tremendous contributions there. And then, and then conclude with the contributions of John Knox in education and in the establishment of Christian schools. So we got a big piece we want to, uh, to bite off this evening. Let's start. First of all, concerning his teaching about the Word of God. One of the banners under which the Protestant reformers lived was the Latin phrase sola scriptura. And by that phrase, they intended not only to communicate an emphasis of the Bible, they intended to distinguish themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. Because sola scriptura means the scripture alone. That is, for the Protestant reformers, the Bible and only the Bible and all the Bible is the source of truth about God, about life, and our responsibility toward Him. For the Roman Catholic Church, there are three sources of truth. The Bible, the traditions of the church, and human reason. 
John Knox, just as strongly, if not more strongly than, than others, believed in the infallibility, the finality of the Bible as the written Word of God. And he believed that the Bible alone is the source of our understanding about God and about life. No one believed that more sincerely, more consistently than did he. In fact, if you want to understand John Knox and everything that he did, which some of which is so out of step with the consensus of our day, then understand that the key to John Knox's thinking, his actions, all of his beliefs, his behavior, is his strict adherence to the revealed will of God in the Bible. And once you understand that the dominant trait of his life was steadfast loyalty to the Word of God and not to man, not even to his own country. John Knox, for instance, would never have said, my country right or wrong. He never would have said, Scotland, love it or leave it. Because for him, above all other loyalties, was his loyalty to the Word of God. And in everything that he did, maybe sometimes he missed the mark, and, and John Knox was not infallible. But whenever he made mistakes, they were honest mistakes, and they were in his efforts and works to be steadfast in his devotion to the Word of God and not to teach and believe anything that's not taught in Holy Scripture. Let me give you his own words. John Knox said, In the religion of God, only ought his own word be considered. Vain religion and idolatry I call whatsoever is done in God's service or honor without the express commandment of his own word. If we had time, I could also show you how that at least in one area, John Knox, and I sort of hesitate to say this, that John Knox was even more consistent in applying the principle of sola scriptura to worship than even John Calvin himself. So one of the major emphases of, of John Knox is his tremendous commitment to the Word of God. A second major and distinctive contribution of John Knox to the Protestant Reformation is his covenantal basis for politics, the covenantal basis for civil government. This was a big thing for him. He taught that the civil government is covenantal. Or if we were to use a modern and synonymous word, if you're going to study the history of words, he would say that the, that, that the civil government is to be federal. Now, federal and covenantal, historically, are synonymous phrases because the word federal comes from a Latin word for covenant. So a federal government is a covenantal government. It is a government uh, in which a series of covenants define its authority, its jurisdictions, its limitations, its functions, its powers, its responsibilities. John Knox believed that the civil government of any nation is based upon a series of such covenants, such bonds, such uh, agreements between people and God or people and people. And I want, to, I want you to see what a solid basis for civil government and a Christian approach to politics this becomes. And that's why I read the passage from 2 uh, Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 15, because in those passages you have a sampling of covenants made by political powers, civil magistrates, and citizenry with reference to each other. And these covenants are the basis 
of a just society and a just civil government. And when a civil government disregards the, its covenantal basis, it will always, without exception, become tyrannical. We live in a country today where we know where we have a, a civil government in Washington and in Georgia and in every other state that no longer believes in or is faithful to the covenantal basis upon which the government of the United States originally was set. And as a result, we have an increasingly tyrannical government and we'll have more tyranny the farther they move away from their covenantal responsibilities. And if we're ever to have revival in this country and the restoration of freedom and the end of the perversion of justice, the, and with that all the other good things that you want in society, then there must be a new covenanting of this nation to its old commitments, a recommitting of this whole nation to the covenants that are right at the basis of everything we are as a nation or started out as being as a Christian nation. Now, what are these covenants? that are the basis of the political life of, any, of, of a Christian nation. One, the head of the state, that is the powers that be, the civil magistrates themselves, in other words, the political institution, the civil government of a nation. The civil government of a nation is in covenant with God. There's the first and basic one. A civil government is in covenant with God, promising as God gives its strength, to rule according to God's revealed law and to oppose idolatry. Now, that's the first covenant. Get these in your mind because they're important. That's the duty of every civil government. Any civil government that does not take that oath of office, as it were, places himself in rebellion against God and seeks to be God itself. So when a civil government is a legitimate power and experiencing God's blessing... That civil government will enter into a covenant with God, promising to administer his revealed law found in the scriptures and to oppose any idolatry against that law. Second covenant. The civil magistrate in the Old Testament representing the head of state, the civil magistrates covenants with the people, promising the people who've been committed to their charge, that they will rule over them righteously and, and for their protection in terms of the, rule, of the law of God. So you've got two covenants. The civil magistrates makes a covenant with God, promising to rule by God's word. The civil government makes a covenant with the people, promising the people that it will rule and protect them in terms of God's law. The third covenant is a covenant of the people with the civil magistrate, that they will submit to the righteous government of the established political authority. You remember Romans 13, the powers that be ordained of God. And if anybody resists, the powers that be unjustly and, and unlawfully resist God himself. So the people take a covenant with the civil magistrate, promising to submit to his rule and government as his government is righteous and in accordance with the rule of God. Fourth covenant. The people, the whole nation, king and people, are in covenant with God that they will be his, their, uh, his faithful people. And on this basis, king and people stand on equal level ground 
and the whole nation stands before God and promises both king and people that the whole nation will be faithful to God. So now that's the powerful contribution that John Knox made to understanding politics from a Christian perspective. How many people you know in office believe that? How many people you know believe that out of office? Not many. So you see why we have, we're in such state as we are today. So that if a nation is going to be a godly nation and, do, and experience God's blessing, then there's going to be the conscious uh, taking upon ourselves of these four covenants and faithfulness to them. The, the, the civil government itself is going to make a covenant with God that it will be faithful to God and rule according to his word. The civil government will take a covenant with the people promising to protect and rule over the people according to the word of God. The people will take a covenant promising to the civil magistrates that we will submit to their righteous authority as long as they rule by the word of God. And the whole nation together promises to be faithful to God, both king and people. And beloved, when these covenants are taken seriously, tyranny is impossible. As well as all the other political problems you have today in this country. Now, it's, it was Knox's understanding of the covenantal basis of politics that was the basis for his third distinctive contribution to the Protestant Reformation and his major contribution, and that is his teaching concerning the legitimacy of resistance against tyranny. It was because he believed in the covenantal basis of politics that he believed in the legitimacy of resistance, even armed resistance, against tyrants. And here's another place where you see the influence of John Knox on North America uh, in the American Revolution, which was not really a revolution. It was a war of self-defense against the tyranny of Great Britain. And you can still see it in the mottos of states to this very day, as we pointed out, the, the motto of the state of Virginia. Uh, is, trans, is an idiomatic phrase translated into English, uh, death to all tyrants. And you remember the great motto of New Hampshire, live free or die. Although today the motto of New Hampshire and the rest of America could be live free or wine. But you can see in the, and in West Virginia it's a little, it's a little more, a uh, little more ambiguous, but nevertheless you still get the flavor of this old Scottish John Knox influence. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the state motto of West Virginia is Montani Semper Liberi. Mountaineers are always free. And, of course, the mountaineers uh, in those days were Scotch-Irish under the influence of John Knox. So let's talk about this major contribution of John Knox, the legitimacy of the resistance against tyranny. What happens in a, in a civil government in a nation where the civil government disregards its covenantal responsibilities before God and that civil government becomes a totalitarian government? a tyrannical government oppressing and harassing, persecuting the people, taking away their freedom, enslaving them, perverting justice, and making them slaves. John Knox taught, let me tell you what he taught first, and then we'll talk about it. John Knox taught that it was legitimate to resist tyranny, even using armed force by the citizenry, led by a lesser civil magistrate against a tyrannical and idolatrous head of state. 
He went so far as to say that Christian citizens and magistrates have the duty to remove tyrants from office. And as a last resort, those tyrants were to be overthrown and executed. Now, that's the teaching of the godly and holy, compassionate John Knox. Now, before we go any farther, lest you think he was a bloodthirsty revolutionary trying to uh, incite popular revolution against Scotland, I want to read to you a book from a book that we alluded to before as one of the major contributions of John Knox to the uh, world of literature. John Knox led in the writing of this confession called the Scots Confession of 1560. He and five other men, whose first names were all John, wrote this confession of faith. And when it was adopted by the Parliament of Scotland and the Church of Scotland General Assembly, it made the Church of Scotland the most reformed church on earth at that particular time. And this remained not only the, uh, the, uh, the confession of faith of Scotland, uh, until the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith almost a century later, but it was also one of the documents the Westminster Confession of Faith used as resource material in writing that document that is the basis of our doctrinal commitment here. I want to read to you very quickly what he said about the civil magistrate. Now, remember, this reflects the theology of John Knox, and you've got to understand the, the whole thing here before we start looking at these details, lest you misunderstand me. Let me go into it further. If you're going to quote me now after this, after this sermon, if you ever quote this sermon, make sure you get it right. I'm going to be as careful as I can in explaining myself. I don't want the Secret Service, CIA, or FBI coming down on me. I'm going to be as careful as I can, bearing in mind I am not infallible, to communicate exactly what John Knox taught, emphasizing where we agree with him and where we don't, and so you listen as carefully as I'm going to try to be careful in saying this stuff so we don't misquote each other. I don't want another Waco, Texas on our hands here. All right. Now, let me tell you about the preface. Here they write the preface of this book. Here's why we're going to write it. John Knox and the others say, Long have we thirsted, dear brethren, to have made known to the world the doctrine which we profess. For we call on God to record that from our hearts we abhor all heretical sects and all teachers of false doctrine, and that with all humility we embrace the purity of Christ's gospel, which is the one food of our souls and therefore so precious to us that we are determined to suffer the greatest of worldly dangers rather than let our souls be defrauded of it. All right, now here's what he says about the civil magistrate and our responsibility to it. Whatever else I say after that, Knox is not going to contradict the Scottish Confession, which he wrote. We confess and acknowledge that empires, kingdoms, dominions, and cities are appointed and ordained by God. The powers and authorities in them, emperors in empires, kings in their realms, dukes and princes in their dominions, and magistrates in their cities are ordained by God's holy ordinance for the manifestation of his own glory and for the good and well-being of all men. We hold that any men who conspire to rebel or overturn the civil powers as duly established are not merely enemies to humanity but rebels against God's will. 
Moreover, we state that the preservation and purification of religion is particularly the duty of kings, princes, rulers, and magistrates. Do you get that? Didn't think you did. The preservation and purification of the Christian religion. When he says religion, he means Christian religion. The preservation and purification of the Christian religion is particularly the duty of the civil magistrate. So you see, there's no religious neutrality in politics for John Knox. They are, nor is there any attempt at religious neutrality in politics for Bill Clinton. There are not only, they are not only appointed for civil government, but also to maintain true religion and to suppress all idolatry and superstition. This may be seen in David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, and others highly commended for their zeal in that cause. Therefore, we confess and avow that those who resist the supreme powers so long as they are acting in their own spheres are resisting God's ordinance and cannot be held guiltless. We further state that so long as princes and rulers vigilantly fulfill their office, anyone who denies them aid, counsel, service denies it to God who by his lieutenant craves it of them. So you see, John Knox was no popular revolutionary. He's saying if anybody seeks ever to rebel or to oppose or to refuse to submit to the civil government, they're rebelling against God. And then he gives these qualifications, which our confession faith does too. As long as the civil government is acting according to its own spheres and ruling vigilantly fulfilling his office. In other words, he's making room. What happens when the civil government turns against the people? As long as they're faithful to the covenant, if you rebel against them or raise a hand against them, you're rebelling against God. But now the issue is what happens if they disregard their covenant responsibilities? John Knox said, now listen, I want you to make sure you get all these ingredients in there. He believed it was legitimate and biblical. That's what I mean by legitimate. To resist tyranny, including the use of armed force by the citizenry, led by a lesser civil magistrate against a tyrannical higher magistrate. Christian citizens and civil magistrates have the duty to remove tyrants from office. He said, in some extreme instances, armed resistance is justifiable, but only if two conditions are met. Now, listen. He says, sometimes it may be the godly thing to do to use weapons to resist tyranny in the civil government. But before you even think about do that, there are two conditions that have to be met, according to John Knox. One, you've tried everything else. You have tried every other way to overthrow every other peaceful, non-violent way to overthrow tyranny, including persevering prayer and patience. So if you haven't tried everything else... If you haven't gone through all the legitimate channels, all the legal channels, tried everything, including persevering prayer and patience, then it's ungodly to raise one finger in armed resistance against the civil magistrate. Second condition. Any armed resistance against tyranny 
must be led by a legitimate lesser magistrate whose authority, uh, whose authority is legitimate. Let me say that again. Any armed resistance against tyranny must be led by a legitimate lesser magistrate with legitimate authority derived from the people, that is, elected office. In other words, what John Knox emphasized was, let's say you got a queen who is trying to impose idolatry upon a people and persecuting the church and slaughtering the people that would not bow to her idolatrous demands. And you've tried everything else. And now the only way to defend yourself against a tyrant is by the use of arms. You and I as private citizens just can't up and declare war upon the federal upon uh, upon a tyrant. We just can't up up and create a militia and go after them. The claim may be that it's constitutional, but it's not biblical. Any Armed resistance. But why? Because the powers that be are ordained of God. And therefore, if the time comes that a tyrant is such that, like Bloody Mary, they're killing the church, killing Christians, burning Christians at the stake, burning down our houses, and not just stealing our money in taxes. I'm talking about real bloodthirsty tyranny, the, the type of which they had in Scotland when they were burning people by the hundreds and imprisoning people by the thousands who were dying in prison and starvation and driving them into poverty by kicking them out of their churches. And the church had no right to meet publicly or else it was a capital offense. I'm talking about something that's way far worse than what we got now. So don't think there's any hidden agenda here. Don't think that I'm saying anything between the lines. We're not even near. The desperate points the people were in Scotland that required armed resistance against tyranny. Now, if there's going to be armed resistance, it's got to be led by a power that be. Just some private individual can't up and start the militia, as we said. There must be some elected civil magistrate who's godly, who may not be as high as the head of, magist- uh, head of the state that's a tyrant, But nevertheless, is a civil magistrate, a lesser civil magistrate, with bona fide authority, elected by the people, any kind of armed resistance must be led by power that be, uh, that is, that has been ordained by God. And therefore, any resistance must be led by a civil magistrate, a lesser civil magistrate against a higher civil magistrate. Knox went on to say that civil magistrates, that is, people in political power, have the duty, not just the right, the duty to depose tyrants who threaten to ruin the cause of the gospel by force. He quoted, of course, Deuteronomy 13 as uh, one of the passages of Scripture that calls upon the civil government to, to uh, oppose idolatry and the imposing upon, of idolatry upon a people. He said, now the citizens, if the citizens are going to be involved in resistance against a tyrant led by a civil magistrate after having tried everything else, those citizens have to be saints. They have to be godly. He says, if you're not a godly lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, an active, faithful, devoted member of the Kirk of the Church of God, don't even think about resisting tyrants. He said, all this only has to do with godly people. And then he said that those who acquiesced in the rule of idolaters were themselves guilty of idolatry. 
Those that acquiesced in the rule of idolaters were themselves guilty of idolatry. That if there was an idolater who was using the power of the civil government to oppress a people, and you went along, and you didn't seek to resist him, let's say today, peacefully and legally, if there's an idolater in office or a tyrant, and you don't use every legal, peaceful means available to you to resist and overturn that tyrant, i.e., get him out of office, then you are guilty of his idolatry. That's the application John Knox would make. So whether he's a Republican idolater or whether he's a Democrat idolater, if you support and vote for idolaters and tyrants, and a tyrant in our culture is anybody in political office who seeks to impose a law other than the law of God upon the citizenry. If you vote for a tyrant or an idolater, you share in their guilt. That's what John Knox would say if he were here. And John Knox didn't care whether it was a queen or whether it was a common man. Everybody was, accept, was responsible before God. And here's one of his major contributions. That's a part of a representative understanding of government. Citizens are responsible for the religious, ethical, moral policies of their sovereigns. Citizens are responsible for the religious, moral, ethical policies of those elected to office. You say, well, Bill Clinton doesn't speak for me. Yes, he does, my friend. He sure does. When Bill Clinton says we ought to have perverts in the military, he speaks for you. He's the power that be that we've elected. And in, the, in a representative covenantal system, he speaks for us. Now, when you think about that, how in the world can you keep from using every legal, peaceful means made available to you to resist and overturn tyrants and idolaters? As long as he's there and you and I do not resist his idolatry and his tyranny, idolater and tyrant that he is, that on judgment day we will share in his guilt and we will have no basis to criticize him for anything he does and any policies he sets if we don't use all of our might and our energy to oppose his tyranny. Legally, peacefully, and by any means made available to us. John Knox had the occasion on several uh, several occasions to preach to Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scots. And every time he did, he would call her attention to the covenants that queens made to their citizens and citizens made to the queens and to God. And, if, and he would remind her that if you break or disobey the covenant you made with God, that you would rule according to his word, you not only have God to deal with, you put yourself in a position where your people are no longer obligated before God to obey you. 
And if you oppose your idolatry and your tyranny upon them, you make yourself vulnerable to armed resistance and execution. And he was serious about these things. He saw his friends die. People that he preached with burned at the stake alive. These things were not just games with him. And this understanding of resistance against tyrants and of refusing to obey the ungodly laws of tyrants is a part of our whole heritage as Presbyterians. That those ideas work their way into the Geneva Bible. Remember, we, we talked about the Geneva Bible, written by, translated by members of John Knox's congregation in Geneva, Switzerland, when he was studying under Calvin. And there's footnotes in the Geneva Bible, and America was founded on it. And in these footnotes, in several places, you find Knox's attitude toward re, uh, resistance against tyrants and refusing to obey ungodly laws. You see, he brought that out, too. That if a king or if a civil government passes a repugnant law that requires on your part disobedience to God in order to obey the laws of the state, you are duty bound to disobey the state. You may never obey the state so as to disobey God. If the civil government ever commands you to do something, the doing of which would require you to disobey God, you must disobey the state, whatever the cost. You may not obey man if man's commands come in conflict. With the commands of God. And these old Scottish reformers would use the passage in Acts where Peter and John were forbidden to preach by the powers that be. And no sooner had they been prohibited to preach with the threat of imprisonment that they stepped out on the steps of the courthouse and began preaching the gospel. And then they were asked why. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. So that resistance to tyranny involves disobedience to tyrannical law that seeks to impose idolatry upon us and disobedience to God. His influence was, was great. In the early days, John Calvin warned, when uh, Knox was in Geneva studying under Calvin, and he was just beginning formulating his understanding of resistance against tyrants, Knox, uh, Calvin warned him of things. He said, I, I just don't quite agree with you on some of these things, so you better cool it. But as time went on, the student influenced the teacher. And John Knox began to influence John Calvin so that toward the, in Calvin's mature days, he whistled a different tune. For instance, if you have Calvin's commentaries on Daniel... Those, that's a commentary that he wrote later in his life. He died in about 1564, and he preached the, the, the sermons on Daniel in 1561. Look up his comments on Daniel 622, and you'll see how, how, how uh, Knox really influenced him. Because in his comments on Daniel 622, Calvin sanctions the defiance of the citizenry against civil magistrates who oppose God. Also, although Calvin on occasion said that he thought Knox was going too far and there ought not to be any armed resistance against idolatrous and tyrannical sovereigns, nevertheless, old Mr. Calvin himself late in life was involved in two conspiracies to overturn idolatrous heads of state. 
1560, there are letters from Calvin in which he talks about the possible and necessary use of force to install Henry of Navarre, the Protestant, as the king of France. And in 1562, a couple of years before his death, Calvin himself helped raise funds for the Huguenots, the French Calvinists, in their bloody war against the Catholic kings of France. So you see, Knox himself had a tremendous influence on his own teacher. And of course, as I said, there was no country that Knox's understanding of legitimate resistance of tyrants influenced than the United States. Right on the eve of the American Revolution, now understand what the American Revolution was. It really wasn't a revolution like the French Revolution. The French Revolution of 1789 and following was an attempt that was the first war of its kind in the history of the world. The French Revolution of 1789 had as its purpose the overturning of any remnant of a Christian moral order in France. So that the people could have fraternity, prosperity, liberty, and be free from Christianity. And, of course, the great gift that the French Revolution gave to the world was Napoleon Bonaparte, the great tyrant and the disappearance of freedom in France. The American Revolution in 1776 was worlds apart from the French Revolution of 1789. The American Revolution really wasn't a revolutionary at all, a revolutionary war at all. It was a war of self-defense against the totalitarian of Parliament, an England that was seeking to impose itself upon the colonists. You see, the colonists did not believe that, that Parliament had any authority whatsoever over the 13 par, uh, colonies. Parliament of England, the boundaries of its jurisdiction with, was England. Each of the 13 colonies had their own parliaments, their own congresses. They each saw themselves as 13 separate nations, and Parliament had nothing to do with them. And so they were resisting, legally resisting, because they were all the armies of the colonies were led by the civil magistrates of those states. The colonies was a leg, uh, uh, put forth a legal armed resistance in self-defense against the tyranny and the totalitarianism of what they saw as a foreign power seeking to... Well, upon the eve of the American Revolution of 1776, right at the top of the Times bestseller list of books was a book that has been conveniently and suspiciously left out of most secular and Christian studies of the American Revolution. And yet it was the most popular book read in the colonies at the time. Now, if you do a study of the American Revolution and the books that influenced the people in America that led them to shed their blood for freedom against tyranny, you would be told, like I have been told by Christians and non-Christians alike, that the great book that influenced people was by Thomas Paine. You know, how many have heard the name Thomas Paine? Well, Thomas Paine was a pagan, first of all. And the people in America didn't believe what Thomas Paine said. He, 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 his views would have supported the French Revolution. The bestseller on the eve of the, of the American Revolution was this book. Not Thomas Paine's book. And this book, it originally had a Latin title called Vindica Contra Tyrannus. Translated into English, the title of this book is A Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants. This was the book that influenced Americans more than any other 
to lay down their lives in arms resistance against the tyranny of Great Britain. And if you want to understand the motives behind the American Revolution, you buy and you read this book that's still available, A Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants. Now, I'm going to read to you a piece or two out of this book. But the reason I bring this book up is because it was written by Huguenots. Now, remember what Huguenots are. we got some descendants of Huguenots in this room, probably. Huguenot is the best, as I told you, the French could do in pronouncing a German word, Eidgenossen, which means brothers of the oath. And the Huguenots were French Calvinists who were at war being persecuted by the kings of Spain, uh, of France. And just to give you a taste of the Huguenots, these were courageous people. They were forced out of their country. They went to various parts of the world and have influenced the United States. Some of the French Huguenots went to Northern Ireland and and became what we call Scotch-Irish, although there's no Scotch-Irish blood in them. A lot of them went to South Africa and formed great reform communities in South Africa. But the French, the French Huguenots faced, uh, fought a bloody, bloody, brutal war with the kings of France. And finally, the kings of France were tired and weary of all this blood. And so they told the French Calvinists that they would sign a peace, that the king was tired of fighting, and so he was going to throw a big party, and he wanted all the French Calvinists to come, and everybody laid down their arms. You should never trust people that say less of so the king, the head of state, on a religious holiday, say, called St. Bartholomew's Day, said, I, at my expense, I'm going to throw parties all over France. I'm pulling back my soldiers. We're going to have peace. There's too much bloodshed. All you Calvinists come for a big dinner. I'll wine you and dine you. So Calvinists, by the thousands, went to these dinners and parties thrown with the king on St. Bartholomew's Day in the late 1500s. When they showed up, the hidden armed French Catholic troops attacked them. And on St. Bartholomew's Day and shortly thereafter, 35,000 godly French Calvinists were butchered. And that's why to this day, France has less reform preaching than any country in Europe and has for decades been one of the most immoral. There is a revival of French Calvinism largely through the mission work of the P PCA in France. But so the Huguenots, uh, Huguenots, as you can see, were French Calvinists who were willing to, to lay down their lives in defense of the Reformed faith. The French Huguenots were tremendously influenced by John Knox. I say, we're finally getting around back to John Knox. The French Huguenots were tremendously influenced by John Knox. They listened to his preaching on tape. They watched him on video. <laughs> they read his books. And of any group of people outside the United States, the French Huguenots were more influenced by John Knox than almost any other reformer. And the French Huguenots wrote this book. You see, now remember... By the time of the American Revolution, in 1776, most Americans spoke with a Scottish accent, not an English accent. And that the northern states, and particularly the middle colonies and the southern states, 
had thousands of Scottish and and Scotch-Irish Calvinists, and the South particularly had loads of French Huguenots. So that by the time of the Civil War, and we keep bringing this out, but it's important, so that by the time of the Civil War, after the migration of the Scotch and Scotch-Irish down from Pennsylvania into Virginia and the like, the northern states were largely, though not exclusively, Anglo-Saxon in their origin. Puritanism had changed into Unitarianism by and large. And the South was largely Scotch, Scotch-Irish, and African, and French Huguenot. Well, the French Huguenots wrote this book, and this was the bestseller in 1776. Calvin, uh, so it can say that John Knox influenced this. Now, I want, I want you to see how influential John Knox was on this book that influenced the United States that led to the America was one of the books that God used to to stir the hearts of the people, to fight against the British, and to create the United States on a covenantal basis. So I want to conclude now, and uh, we'll just talk about the distinctives of Knox in poor relief and in education some other time. But I want you to see the influence of Knox on this book. So I'm going to read you some pieces of the bestseller, 1776. For it me, uh, uh, th this book, by the way, deals with four questions. I want you to see how pertinent this book is. The whole book is about four questions. First, are citizens duty-bound to obey their governments if their governments command them to do something contrary to the law of God? Very pertinent, don't you think? Great stuff. Second question, is it lawful to resist a civil government that infringes and disregards the law of God. Third, is it lawful to resist a civil government that oppresses or ruins its people? And how far may this resistance be extended? By whom, how, by what authority? By the way, it reminds me of when I was in South Africa, there was a descendant of a French Huguenot that had a farm where I was antelope hunting. And uh, after the hunt, I had to speak at a city meeting of military officers and civil magistrates and preachers and citizens. It was a pretty big deal. And I made my point that, to quote Martin Luther, the purpose of the church in, re in reference to the state the purpose of the church is to lick the fur of the state. Not to lick the feet, but to lick the fur of the state. And that's Martin Luther's statement. And the point is, he was talking about a cat that's always licking itself with its rough tongue to, to uh, keep itself clean. And the purpose of the church is to keep the state clean, as far as uh, the purpose as far as its relationship with the church is concerned, to keep it clean. Well, this Afrikaner of French Huguenot descent and John Knox influence, as well as a little Dutch and German Calvinism thrown in, and Swiss Calvinism, stood up at this public meeting and with this thick Afrikaner accent, he said, Herr Moorcraft, you say the purpose of the state is to lick, uh, of the church is to lick the fur of the state. How rough may a cat lick the fur of the state? I smiled and moved on to the next question. Fourth question dealt with in this book. Are civil governments of one country 
bound by law to assist citizens, Christian citizens in another country who are being killed and persecuted by their civil government for being Christians. So you see, this is a great little book. I'm going to tell you, give you a paraphrase quote of somebody's estimation of this and see if you can tell me who said this. This is one of the most influential books in America on the eve of the revolution. President John Adams. Now, let me give you some uh, quotes. It may well be well demanded wherefore Christians have endured so many afflictions, but that they were always persuaded that God must be obeyed simply and absolutely, and kings must be obeyed with this exception, but that they were always persuaded that God must be obeyed simply and absolutely, that, they, that kings not command that which is repugnant to the law of God. God must always be obeyed and kings must always be obeyed except for this one qualification. Civil governments may not be obeyed when their laws are repugnant to the law of God. Otherwise, wherefore should the apostles have answered that God must rather be obeyed rather than men? I underline some things here. Notice their philosophy of politics. This is great. Therefore, all kings are vassals of the king of kings. Every civil government is a vassal of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and to do what he says. All kings are the vassals of the king of kings invested into their office by the sword, which is the cognizance of their royal authority to the end or for the purpose that with the sword they maintain the law of God. The reason the king of kings has put the civil government in its place and ordained the civil government is that the civil government may use the sword to maintain, uphold, enforce, and obey God's law. Defend the good and punish evil. Even as we commonly see that he who is a sovereign Lord puts his vassals into possession of their fee, their responsibilities, by girding them with a sword, delivering them a buckler and a standard, with condition that they shall fight for them with whose arm, those arms, if occasion shall serve. That when God puts a sword in the civil magistrate's hand, he says, I want to use this. I want you to use this. Obviously, he says, I want you to use it for me and not for yourself. Now, if we consider what is the duty of vassals, we shall find that what may be said of them agrees properly to kings. The vassal holds his office of his Lord with the right of justice and the charge to serve him in his wars. The king is established, or the civil magistrate, by the Lord God, the king of kings, to the end that he should administer justice to his people and defend them against their enemies. The vassal receives laws and conditions from his sovereign. God commands the king to observe his laws and to have them always before his eyes, promising that he and his successors shall possess long their kingdom if they be obedient to his laws. And on the contrary, that their reign shall be of small continuance if they prove rebellious to their sovereign king. So these old French Huguenots says, if a civil magistrate is faithful to King Jesus, he'll bless them for generations. If they're unfaithful to King Jesus, then they'll be short-lived. The vassal obliged himself by oath, John Knox, 
unto his Lord and swears that he will be faithful and obedient. In like manner, the king promises solemnly to command according to the express laws of God. Briefly, the vassal loses his office if he commits a felony and by law forfeits all his privileges. In the like case, the king loses his right and many times his realm also if he despise God and if he commit felony against God's royal majesty. Now we read of two sorts of covenants at the inauguration of a king. Remind you of anybody? The first covenant between God, the king, and the people, that the people might be the people of God. The second covenant between the king and the people, that the people shall obey faithfully and the king command justly. When King Joaz was crowned, we read that a covenant was con contracted between God, the king, and the people. And then he goes on to spell out the details of this covenant. You see John Knox's influence. That the king himself and all the people should be careful to honor and serve God according to his will revealed in his word, which if they perform, God would assist and preserve their estates. As in doing the contrary, he would abandon and exterminate them, which does plainly appear by the conferring of diverse patches, passages of holy writ. God says if a king and his people are faithful to these covenants, God will bless them. If a king is unfaithful, God will abandon them, exterminate those that uh, cohort with him, as the Word of God teaches. I want you to notice how Christian he is, these Huguenots. Now, although the form, both of the church and the Jewish kingdom, be changed, the Jewish kingdom of the Old Testament, for that which was before enclosed within the narrow bounds of Judea is now dilated throughout the whole world. Notwithstanding, the same things may be said of Christian kings, the gospel having succeeded the law, and Christian princes being in the place of those of Jewry, this is the same covenant, the same conditions, the same punishments, and if they fail in accomplishing the same God Almighty, revenger of all perfidious disloyalty, and as the former were bound to keep the law, so the other are obliged to adhere to the doctrine of the gospel." For the advancement whereof those kings that they're anointing and receiving do promise to employ the utmost of their means. Knox says, in other words, if a head of state, if a civil government is going to receive God's blessing, he's got to uphold, defend the gospel of Jesus Christ as over against all other and make sure there's no obstacles in his commonwealth to the advancement of that gospel. I don't know anybody running for office that believes that. Uh, except maybe Bobby Franklin. Not maybe, surely. And uh, I, I know very few Presbyterians who believe that anymore. Joe, are you saying that the civil government should use its power given by God to uphold and defend and encourage the advancement of the gospel? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Only because I'm a child of the Scottish Reformation and of the kingdom of God. And then he goes on, and I'll not read anymore, but he goes on and talks about those kings who commit felony against God by imposing laws that are repugnant to the word of God. They are to be obeyed, but their laws are to be disobeyed. And he goes on, I highly recommend this, as he says, here's an interesting one. Uh, may a private person or may private persons raise arms in resistance of a tyrannical civil government? And the answer is no. Private citizens may not. Lesser civil magistrates may. 
but not private citizens that up and throw to get themselves together into militia. Well, the ne next week, the Lord willing, we will talk because it's important. How do you deal with welfare, unemployment, education? We'll talk about that next week. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for these great men and women of God that have preceded us. Help us to follow them where they're right, to not follow them where they're mistaken. But we thank you for their witness, for Christ's sake. Amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.